The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota, as part of the weekly Dharma series. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. Nice to see everybody tonight. Thanks to Win Fricky, Common Ground's co-founder, who taught last week. I'll be here tonight, of course, and then next Monday, and then I'll be teaching. Um, at Spirit Rock uh, the following Monday, but Shelley Graff, our associate director, will be here teaching. Shelley's on retreat right now out with uh, Andrea Fellow at IRC, Insight Retreat Center, the place that um, Gil and Andrea started near Santa Cruz, doing a two-week retreat with our chair of our board of directors, Stacy McClendon, Common Grounds Power Couple. Some of you know Stacy and Shelley. So we get to talk about impermanence tonight. Ajahn Chah, this is this well-known quote from Ajahn Chah, do everything with a mind that lets go. Or you could say, let's be. Don't expect praise or gain or anything else. If you let go a little, you will have a little peace. If you let go a lot, you will have a lot of peace. If you let go or let be completely, you will have complete peace. And, uh, you know, in the tradition, sometimes people would say to the Buddha, you know, people that are following you, you know, your students, they look, they have minds like wild deer. Isn't that a nice image? I mean, it's interesting you know, this may be sort of an urban dweller's point of view, but, you know, when you see a deer out in the wild, it always looks pretty vibrant. You know, how, you know, where you run into a friend, they might look like, oh, you're having a bad day, or, you know, whatever, you're looking older or something. We don't seem to think that when we see creatures out in the woods. So there's something about... um, coming into alignment. In a way, when our heart comes into alignment with the way it is, then our being, our body-mind, even if it is old and disheveled, there's something live about our body and mind when it's in alignment. Because what it's expressing isn't the fixedness, the delusion of our thinking mind. Then our life is expressing the aliveness of everything, the unrestrictedness. And you see that. I mean, I one of the impactful moments for me was spending six weeks at a monastery in Thailand, Ajahn Mahabua's monastery. He's one of the great uh, forest Ajahns um, of that particular generation. Uh, it really changed Buddhism in Thailand, starting with Ajahn Man and Ajahn Sa, these two sort of Dharma friends, Buddhist monks back in the early 1900s, and they practiced together, and they became very famous, especially Ajahn Man. And Ajahn Man was one of the impactful teachers for people like Ajahn Chah. But Ajahn Mahabu was one of the other students of Ajahn Man. And that second generation, you know, who kind of came into their power as good teachers in the late 50s and 60s and 70s, really affected not just 
Buddhism in Thailand, kind of this reformation back to the basics, really back to the woods, out of the bigger established urban monasteries and and really back into the nature of things. And uh, then we're, there are all kinds of ripples here in the West from what those forest ajans did. And uh, so when I was there, Ajahn Mahabhu was quite old, probably like 93, 92, something like that. And he only spoke Thai. Uh, there was a wonderful English monk that I could get instructions from. But, um, but I would sit after the meal. Ajahn Mahabhu would just entertain all the lay people that were there. And he'd go on and on. And you just, I, I just liked watching, even though I didn't understand anything just to see his embodiment. And even before, like when he was walking in and, and then leaving, he'd kind of look around and he'd kind of poke around the room and they had like pictures of other things and he'd sort of look. And, but he, his whole, the nature of his body and mind felt really, really alive, even though he was you know, quite old and had in some respects, a really grueling life, having basically camped out for decades of his life in the jungles in northern Thailand, eastern Thailand. So here's another sort of how they describe the, you know, the people who are practicing well, the nuns and monks who are practicing well, smiling and cheerful, sincerely joyful, plainly delighting their faculties fresh, unexcited, unruffled, living by what others give, dwelling with minds like wild deer. Isn't that what we want? (laughs) Or at least just to understand it, understand how that could be. Sharon Salzberg says, as we begin to understand this Dhamma the way it is, We move from a mode of struggling to control what comes into our lives into a mode of simply wishing to truly connect with what is. This is a radical shift in worldview. So that's that's really, especially during this course, we're changing our allegiance or orientation because we've gotten quite comfortable on the surface of our life creating sort of a fixed story, things that feel solid. We have our solid body. We have our seemingly solid relationships until they're not. And, you know, our seemingly solid associations and seemingly solid opinions. And it gives us a semblance of safety. That's kind of the ordinary, neurotic, uneasy, unsettled life we live, holding to these things that have an appearance of solidity, appearance of permanence, and then therefore giving an appearance of safety. And if, it's, if we can hold it all together, if we can't sort of manifest some semblance of safety and permanence, then, you know, we either have a mental health problem often I mean, in some degrees, that's how society labels people who can't construct 
meaning that creates relative stability, relative safety, relative permanence. Or we're really frantic, you know, trying to get ground under our feet in one way or another. There's a poem that Dakini speaks from Joyce Wellwood. My friend, let's grow up. Let's stop pretending we don't know the real deal, the deal here. Or if we truly haven't noticed, let's wake up and notice. Look, everything that can be lost will be lost. It's simple. How could we have missed it for so long? Let's grieve our losses fully like human right beings. But please, let's not be so shocked by them. Let's not act so betrayed as though life had broken her secret promise to us. Impermanence is life's only promise to us, and she keeps it with ruthless impeccability. To a child, she seems cruel, but she's only wild and her compassion exquisitely precise, brilliantly penetrating, luminous with truth. She strips away the unreal to show us the real. This is the true ride. Let's give ourselves to it. Let's stop making deals for a safe passage. There isn't one anyway, and the cost is too high. We are not children anymore. The true human adult gives everything for what cannot be lost. Let's dance the wild dance of no hope. That sounds like wild deer, right? (laughs) So I was thinking, like, what would we call this week in our eight-week impermanence class? Denial and resistance to change doesn't make sense. But it kind of seems like it should. (laughs) That's sort of our predicament. It doesn't, when we look, when we really check it out, denial of change, denial of impermanence, resistance, you know, it doesn't make sense. It's too stressful to live out out of alignment with change. But yet we keep doing it. It keeps sort of making enough sense that we keep doing it. And so our job, in a way, is to start collecting data that it's not working. And little by little, more aligning with the reality of change. And part of what we're doing is we're just learning as a practice to pick up the frame of change, like to learn, like we did in the guided meditation, to learn to look at hearing look at breathing, look at bodily sensations, look at the day. So gross things, you know, like Monday was born, lasts, slipping through our fingers now as we're getting into the late evening. And to really just train the mind to see it. And then at some point, you know, it feels a little artificial you might have noticed during the guided meditation or other work you did this last couple of weeks in the class, you might feel it's a little artificial to be seeing change. Oh, Mark was talking and now he's done. You know, but it's, it's sort of like 
as a counterbalance to not noticing we need these kind of interventions where we make it a point to notice that the sit's over. Or the thought, that thought wasn't there, now there's this thought there. Now that thought's gone. You hear that snap? It's like a little birth and death. But we miss it. I mean, it's like a teacher, all these things. How something just bursts into the moment and then it's gone. And we often use initially really catching the endings. But just follow your own interest because we need to understand both. I don't know if some of you, hopefully some of you read, I think I included one of Thich Nhat Hanh's writings. But, you know, he really makes a point of seeing the positive end. The Buddha, this is Thich Nhat Hanh, the Buddha implored us not to talk, not just to talk about impermanence, but to use it as an instrument to help, help us penetrate deeply into reality and obtain liberating insight. We may be tempted to say that because things are impermanent, there is suffering. But the Buddha encouraged us to look again. Without impermanence, life is not possible. How can we transform our suffering if things are not impermanent? How can our children grow up to be beautiful young adults? How can the situation in the world improve? We need impermanence for social justice and for hope. If you suffer, it is not because things are impermanent. It is because you believe things are permanent. And then... uh, Awareness of impermanence, you become po- with awareness of impermanence, you become positive, loving, wise. Impermanence is good news. Without impermanence, nothing would be possible. With impermanence, every door is open for change. Impermanence is an instrument for our liberation. So it's not bad news. And you can just ask that, you know, when you're noticing the ending of something and you're appropriately grieving that, you can just ask, is impermanence only bad news? No, impermanence isn't only bad news. It's neither good news nor bad news. It's just the way it's always been. It's the way it will always be. So we're just coming into alignment. The problem isn't impermanence. The problem is the wrong idea of permanence. The problem is the wrong idea of permanence, is the misperception right, that we have. So we're just here, living our lives, collecting data. You know, that's this realignment with seeing change. And like I said, it initially might feel a little artificial, like uh, one instruction I really like from Venerable Analio, this German monk, keep calmly knowing change. That's a, like if you just want to remember one instruction from our Buddhist practice, keep calmly knowing change. Wherever you are, whatever you're doing, keep calmly recognizing, acknowledging things are bursting forth into the moment, things are falling away from the moment. It changes, like when we're suffering, it really loosens and lightens up how it is when things are really difficult. And when things are really good and beautiful in our lives for a few moments, 
it really also loosens up, like is a preventative balm from keeping us from getting attached to the good stuff that sometimes happens. We don't imagine it's more than what it is. It's nice now. People like me. Feels good. The body feels good now. And it won't always be that way. This too will change. And so this is a real pragmatic, it's not a, you know, it's not meant to be a philosophical thing that we believe in, but we're really retraining our perceptual processes, like how we make up the world or make up the meaning we have about the world. So we choose to frame everything, we choose to align our perceptual habits with change, with reality of change. As a pragmatic device, like what does that do? And so I don't know if you did last week in your small groups, but I'll try to save time tonight in a larger group. We can talk about like what what are we noticing is the effect if we keep change in mind, how does it change how we are, how we see, how we live? Is it helpful? or not helpful, keeping change in mind? What are the effects of that? I mentioned, I think, week one about Ajahn Chah's teacup, to see it as already broken. Somebody sent me this. This is, uh, let your aim be Nibbana. It's a little transcribed talk by um, Ajahn Chah. This, he was one of the students of Ajahn Man, one of the elders in the forest tradition, Thai forest tradition. The Buddha taught to die before you die, to be finished with things before they are finished. Then you can be at ease. Let things break before they are, they are broken. Let them finish before they are finished. This is the this is the Buddha's intention in teaching the Dhamma, right, the way it is, teaching the teachings about the way it is. That's what Dhamma means. Even if you listen to teachings for a hundred or a thousand eons, if you do not understand these points, you won't be able to undo your suffering and you will not find peace. You will not see Dhamma the way it is. Die before you die. I mean, that's so interesting. I'm seeing Kevin over there, knowing he has young children, thinking, like, I mean, that would be a powerful, I mean, you don't have to imagine them gone, but you can imagine them teenagers or young adults not living at home or parents with their own teenagers, right? And just to, I mean, even at the time of the Buddha, you know, he talked about that there would be a time when all of these teachings would be forgotten. I mean, that's kind of a, a powerful reflection. Just like we can imagine that there will be a time where human beings will be treating each other with more respect, there will be more harmony, more justice. And we can imagine there will be times when that kind of order will break down and things will be really chaotic and mean-spirited and power will 
abuse, the power that it has, and people will really suffer. Basically, whatever can happen in the great scheme of things will happen. Really good stuff, really bad stuff, and a lot in between. And this trips away this idea that, oh no, this is a slow march. Like, that's a story we tell ourselves. This permanent movement towards whatever, you know, we might say to ourselves. But the truth is we don't know. And a lot of what we see is sometimes it goes this way and sometimes it goes that way. And the reason we want to understand, because you know, it's not just that things are impermanent, but things are unreliable and uncertain. In a way, that's, that might be even a more useful word or idea, this uncertain, unreliable, who knows, anything can happen. Because remember, we're using this frame as a path, a support for liberation. Because the mind, or the path rather, has to loosen up anything that's fixed. Because anything that is fixed, any part of the mind that's established, that's holding to something that seems fixed, then that is threatened by reality. It's a setup. Whenever we're clinging to something, then the way it is, reality, is a threat, is an existential threat. So this is, we're here in reality, and it's an existential threat because we're imagining things are not the way that they are. So the way that they are is threatening. That's called being a neurotic human being. Everything around us is threatening because it's manifesting this wild aliveness. And we're imagining something fixed, that we can get someplace fixed, some solid ground where we'll somehow be untouched and safe. And on some level, right, under the delusion, the heart experiences the disconnect or the know, incongruous, incongruous, I'm not sure what the right word is, but like it doesn't quite work. Something's not true, something's not in alignment. Incongruency, and that's it. Another one of, uh, another great poem by Jane Kenyon, some of you know this poet, Constance. From her book, Constance, and the poem is titled Otherwise. I got out of bed on two strong legs. It might have been otherwise. I ate cereal, sweet milk, ripe, flawless peach. It might have been otherwise. I took the dog uphill to the birch wood. All morning I did the work I love. At noon I lay down with my mate. It might have been otherwise. We ate dinner together at a table with silver candlesticks, it might have been otherwise. I slept in a bed in a room with paintings on the walls and planned another day just like this day. But one day I know it will be otherwise. So that sense of comfort with uncertainty. And it doesn't 
undermine the experience that we're receiving. It actually helps us show up with more integrity, with more interest. We're actually more and more touched by life because we're not imagining our experiences more than what it is. I had ice cream today. And I notice sometimes, I'm not sure I noticed today, I don't remember noticing today, but I notice sometimes I catch myself doing one of two things, eating ice cream in a way that just unconsciously assumes that I'll be eating more ice cream in the future so I don't really have to show up and appreciate it. Because there's this arrogant presumption of certainty, there will be more ice cream in the future, so I don't really have to meet this, these moments of eating ice cream. And then other times, more the other way, where I don't know, but I know I'm eating ice cream now, that I know, right? And I show up. And it's the same thing like when we're walking around the block or when we're with our sweetheart, you know, holding hands or be playing together or with someone you love. You know, like this poem suggests, sometimes we're there, just not like we're thinking about it, but just that understanding, that frame is there, that someday it will be otherwise. It won't be like this. And it changes the moment. And the question is, you know, the question for all of us during this course is, Keeping that frame of impermanence in mind, how does it change our lives? Is it a skillful means for more wisdom and compassion, more skill in our lives, keeping it in mind? Good, good practitioners, the Buddha says. It is good that you understand the Dhamma taught by me in such a way. The stream of tears that you have shed as you roamed and wandered through this long course, weeping and wailing because of being being united with what is disagreeable and separated from the agreeable. This alone is more than the water in the four great oceans. For a long time, practitioners, you have experienced the death of a mother. You've experienced... And as you have experienced this weeping and wailing because of being united with the disagreeable and separated from the agreeable, the stream of tears that you have shed is more than the water in the four great oceans. For a long time, practitioners, you have experienced the death of a father, death of a sister, death of a brother, death of a son, a daughter, the loss of relatives, loss of wealth, loss through illness, As you have experienced this weeping and wailing because of being united with the disagreeable and separated from the agreeable, the stream of tears that you have shed is more than the water of the four four great oceans. For what reason? Because practitioners, this samsara, these cycles of suffering, are without discoverable beginning. It is enough to experience the truth of the drawbacks toward all formations, all conditioned experience, enough to become dispassionate toward all conditioned experience. 
enough to be liberated from them, right? to let go. And that's why, you know, this chant we do at the beginning of the evening, done often at the time of somebody's death. Here's a slightly different translation. Impermanent, alas, are formations, subject to arising and vanishing. Having arisen, they cease. Their appeasement is blissful. When we really align with birth and death, then we don't have a problem with life, with the wildness, with the truth, with the ordinary reality. It's just interesting to kind of hold that again as a way of framing our experience. When there is suffering, when our heart feels tight or burdened, in what way my, my, may, might this mind or might the understanding of this mind be out of alignment? Like there's some understanding, some presumption, and then there's the way that it is, and there's some arrogant clinging to the presumption. I don't mean arrogant in in sort of a negative way, but just in a habit way. Here's a very funny talk you can hear online on YouTube. This guy with an interesting name, Sandy Beach. Some of you know this, maybe if you're a 12-stepper. But he was well-known in the 12-step community. This is a while back. And he, he gave this talk, and then he was asked to give it over and over again because it was so funny. But he talks about you know somebody drowning, holding on, like in a Buddhist sense, to the defilements, to the habits of the mind. And all his... Dharma friends, or but all his 12-step friends are on the shore saying, let go of the rock. <laughs> you know, he's screaming, I'm drowning, help me. And they're all lovingly, out of compassion, out of their own understanding, screaming, let go of the rock. And he keeps screaming back, but it's my rock. <laughs> right? And in this context, the rock is thinking like whatever we're thinking, the clinging to the meaning of whatever we're clinging to. It's not that our thoughts are wrong or that we shouldn't have thoughts. It's thinking, it's the wrong sense, (coughs) the wrong understanding that our thoughts are going to deliver safety or happiness. (coughs) And that brings me to the, um, I sent you the, Andy Olensky's translation of this very well-known story of Gotami and the mustard seed, Gotami and the mustard seed, and about this woman at the time of the Buddha. It's kind of a sad story. You know, you can imagine a very patriarchal society, maybe even more so than now, and uh, and especially being poor, um, and being married into a family that had more wealth and for a long time not delivering a son to the bigger family, extended family, and so not having much worth at all in a kind of social context. And then finally giving birth to a son and finally kind of being brought in and feeling part, belonging, 
and then the sun plane one day dies, right? And she can't handle it, right? Because it's sort of like such a shock. So holding on to the young child who's dead, looking for medicine, unable to acknowledge the reality. And somebody finally takes mercy and had some connection with the Buddha and said, because people would just sort of write her off, you know, the kid's dead, probably beginning to stink there in the tropics. And here she is, said, you've got to give me medicine. What can I do to help my sick son? So he had the wherewithal to sort of tell the little white lie. Well, I know somebody who can help you with your son. Go see the Buddha, right? So she tracked down where the Buddha was staying. And the Buddha kind of kept the ruse going, says, yes. But first, in order for me to be able to help you with your son, you need to go get a mustard seed, but it has to be gotten from a family, from a home where nobody has died. So the Buddha was smart in in this kind of, had some intuition about what might help. And so she took off, of course, and went from one hut, one house to the next. Because mustard seeds, that was a common spice, one little mustard seed, people would be happy to give, right? But of course, when she said, but first let me ask, has anybody died in this house? And of course, in that time, you know, people died in the house. They didn't get shipped somewhere else to die, like a hospital or a nursing home. So she was not able to find. And it just, it's like that, I've been talking about the collecting data, right? Just of the reality that, omnipresence of change, of birth and death. Because part of the story the mind was rejecting, right, or part of the story the mind was clinging is, this isn't fair, or this, it isn't supposed to be this way. This kid was a vibrant kid. You know, the death doesn't make sense. I can't make sense of that. Because I was so dependent, my mind was so dependent on being the mother of this child. That's all I know. I can't let that ground go. And the thing is, the mind, the heart, will come into alignment with data. But we have to collect data honestly. That's where the mindfulness comes in. That's how we change our view. It's not enough to want to change our view. We actually have to see things as they are. I think Wynne last week mentioned that quote from the Buddha about how seeing in one moment impermanence is better than living a hundred years without seeing impermanence. Because it, it really, that collecting that data excuse me, clearly, really changes. It makes it harder to believe the lie that there's something that we can count on. And it's just a setup for betrayal. I mean, think about how much, just on the level of uh, intimate relationships breaking up, how much pain. Thinking that whatever we had together is dependable, and finding it wasn't dependable. Or jobs, financial security, how much suffering when that changed, 
or health, healthy, 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 and then really sick. And how shocking, how much, how it, that kind of betrayal hurts. And it wasn't, it isn't even so much the illness or the loss of a relationship, the loss of a friend, the loss of security. It's more the betrayal. It's like it's this feeling that I can't trust my mind or the world. But when we come into alignment with the wildness of life, then what is going to arise to surprise us? Then we're more like wild deer, you know, that sort of live, um, fearless dance, participation. I spent the last uh, nine days with Kamala, really dear, dear friend and teaching colleague and also an important teacher of mine and still today really powerful mentor. And she's had such an amazing life. A lot of you know Kamala Masters, one of our elder teachers, elder in the sense of wisdom. But anyway, uh, she was just talking about a tanka that uh, they have at their house. And a tanka is a Tibetan sort of <clears throat> Buddhist painting. And it's, uh, some of you maybe have seen this particular depiction of the lotus flower, beautiful lotus flower, and two skeletons dancing together on the lotus flower. It's really a sweet little teaching, right? And that's a nice symbol, uh, depiction of human, beautiful human relationships. There's something beautiful, but nice to be reminded of death, of loss. And somebody on the retreat in the last day, he said he didn't wear it during the retreat because he thought it might be too provocative. Uh, somebody, a uh, Native American person, and he had this t-shirt, and it sort of looked indigenous, but I don't know if the uh, artist was actually indigenous, and it, but it, it was sort of a really beautifully colorful skull, but it had like really rich colors, big, like covering most of the chest of the t-shirt. And so it's one of those sort of nice depictions of something really draws you in, just the beauty of the colors. And, and then it, you know, in a matter of a second, you realize it's a skull. But it's a beautiful skull. <laughs> and, it's, and this is sort of a nice way to frame, like to really, in our minds, like as we do this work, to connect, to kind of hold liberation, wild deer, whatever the image and impermanence together. Like it's a doorway for us. And yeah, the doorway is scary for sure, right? Because, but it's scary because of the unknown. Like we don't know, truthfully, we don't know if we can trust impermanence. But we don't, the, the thing is we've been living with impermanence. It's, it's like nothing's actually going to change when we come into alignment with impermanence. Because whatever it is, it's always been that way, right? So we're just sort of settling in, getting comfortable, growing roots, in a sense, into the reality. And instead of being 
frightened by the way that it is, or in denial and resistant to the way that it is, really getting comfortable with it. This is a really poetic uh, expression. It's from Antonio Macaro. Why should we call these accidental furrows roads? Everyone who moves on walks like Jesus on the sea. Some of you remember that Christian story of Jesus walking on water. You, in the second stanza, you, you walking, your footprints are the road and nothing else. There is no road. Walker, you make the road by walking. By walking, you make the road. And when you look backward, you see the path that you, that you never will step on again. Walker, there is no road, only wind trails in the sea. It goes on, there's more to the poem, but it stands especially. So I sent some uh, articles out for you to read. Um, the Aya Mendanandi here, that it says Sister Mendanandi, but now, nowadays she goes by Aya Mendanandi. And uh, the joy hidden in sorrow. Right? And so it's just that natural sorrow we have around loss, very appropriate, because we're, you know, it is a very appropriate to grieve and, and unavoidable to grieve the loss of the ignorance, right? It's, it's what we're grieving is the idea that this wouldn't change, changes. And it's not like you, there's any way away from grieving. It's just that the more the mind is in alignment with imper, uh, impermanence, with change, then the grieving is constant. It's like the poignancy of loss is all the time. So it's, it's not a shock when we feel that it's almost sometimes like a tearing away when something was there but it's not there anymore. Some of you, a lot of us, probably have experienced intense grief at some point in our lives, even if it's just, not just, but like the loss of a pet or a lost parent or whatever it might be. Some, maybe a loss of a child. And that, so to really look at that uh, joy and sorrow, because as we use that pain of loss and really align with it as a flow, right? like uh, a non-holding flow, we learn something about freedom. It's not avoiding loss, it's really an integration with loss. So you might want to take a look at that article, The Joy Hidden in Sorrow, and then another really powerful one um, is a talk, just this lion's roar from Ajahn Chah, who I mentioned earlier, and that one of the uh, lay disciples, students of Ajahn Chah, older woman, was nearing death, 
uh, and he just kind of gave this powerful little talk to this woman as she was close to death. And it was just really powerful. So you can, you know, for some of you, it might be good medicine. For others, it may not be useful. And that's true with all the articles and talks and stuff that are up on our webpage under the Buddhist studies. If you want to see the whole webpage, remember, you can go to the website, look under resources. When you, the drop-down menu under resources, you'll see Buddhist studies. And the, when you click on that, you'll get the impermanence page. So I wanted to save about 15 minutes, which is what we have, just for a, a larger group discussion, questions that you might have, and then just some of the experiences that you've been having, like when you use the frame, when you do this sort of seemingly artificial thing of training your mind to see change, what effects have you seen with that? Yeah, what comes to mind? Questions, yeah. And let's use the mic, because we're recording, of course. Thank you, Mark. Um, So I'm looking at this little chant, that all conditioned things arise and pass away. So I'm wondering, is there something that's unconditioned, and what is that? (laughs) Yeah, but we we can't really name that, because we're... You know, the mind is in this conditioned realm, right? Oriented towards the conditioned realm. But you can say that, like just as a pointer, non-attachment, non-fixation, not obsessed with the conditioned realm, with everything that's being known or everything that's coming and going, the non-attachment is a pointing in the direction of the unconditioned, right? So we, the Buddha often talks about emptiness, and it's very easy to turn emptiness into a kind of Buddhist heaven. Oh yeah, I can't wait till I get to emptiness. <laughs> but it's really about what's not there. And here's, here's a line that I, I forget where I just mentioned it, maybe in a talk at the retreat. Um, one of Ajahn Tanisaro's teachers, who was one of these great Thai forest Ajahns, teachers of this last century, Ajahn Suwat, um, said something like, this is a paraphrase, when we experience a deeper happiness, like the happiness of the unconditioned, it doesn't matter that it's impersonal, or it doesn't matter that it doesn't belong to us, or that it isn't about us, you know? Because the heart's interested in release. We think, I want release. But actually, just release is fine. We don't care about ownership when the burden's put down. Ownership is the problem, the, the need to feed the sense of the owner, what the owner wants, owner wants freedom, the owner wants enlightenment, the owner wants to realize the unconditioned, that's the problem. But when the mind realizes the happiness of non-attachment, has some glimpse, some opening to freedom, a natural freedom that's here and now when the mind isn't clinging, 
isn't neurotic, then it doesn't really matter like what uh, a thinking mind might say about that. What matters is that that's available, right? That it's there, that it's sort of the background, the negative space. Yeah. Thank you. Um, And then one other thing, the poems, several of the poems you read were very touching. I'm wondering if you could email some of those out. Yeah, the next email I'll send out um, next week, I'll have those poems. Yeah. Thank and you. if I forget, remind me. But yeah, because I have them, I have them uh, digitally, so I can send them out. Yeah, Tim, you want to pass the mic over? Good evening. Uh, I tend to have a lot of curiosity and interest in things, and habitually, it's always kind of grabby, and I like keep making things up versus like a concept or idea and then like a symbol and then like an image and it always just becomes more like more states mind states i'm trying to have but that it's not really quen it's not really like quenching my what i want to understand yeah and you know that yeah because that's a big thing that you realize that your strategy which is try to figure it out, which is in especially more of the kind of wisdom types in the room, it will ring hollow, but we'll, we'll do it anyway, and then we'll realize it's not really working, and we'll start looking in a, another direction. Well, I've really, what I wanted to say was I take the teachings in this impermanence class and I apply it to those my understanding of things and it, then it becomes each understanding I have is just a pathway to another understanding which does not degrade the present understanding at all and it, in fact it makes it more lively and it makes it makes my mind feel a lot freer and it makes it makes uh, it makes it easier to show up to and purify the views in my mind which yeah. I really need right now yeah yeah <laughs> There's a lot of freedom uh, for wisdom types, people who really orient around understanding. There's a lot of freedom in integrating the teachings and really having a lot of integrity about how you think about experience. But the deeper freedom comes from the application where we're using ordinary experience. We're using that kind of refined intellectual understanding and really bringing the mind into ordinary any moment will do so you don't need we don't need a special moment and really confirming what the integrity of the intellectual reflection has led the mind to right and then confirming it directly yeah but it's hard because like you said Tim there's a lot of energy in that abstract that abstract world and there's a lot of purity precisely because it's not on this ordinary, messy level. So people like to live there. But then they get divorced, or then they get old, or, you know, the world intrudes, the conditioned world intrudes again. So we might want to 
start making the transition before it's forced on us, right? Yeah, I feel like it, it's intruded on me enough times and it makes me feel like, yeah, something needs to change and that is me. So <laughs> thank you. Yeah, thanks for bringing that up. Yeah, since it's like, wait for the mic though. Hey, I just um, thank you for that beautiful talk and the poems and just all of it was just really beautiful and um, beautiful. Um, so one of the things I'm kind of dealing with is like, so understanding impermanence and things arise and fall. And so when things kind of come up, I've been trying to like, all right, let me just relax and then train the body just to relax when craziness comes up and craziness just comes up a lot. But then under the relaxation that is impermanent, like my brain is like, nah, this is crazy. So I don't know, like there's some dissonance there, I guess, Yeah. because I wonder about, am I just going to check out? Is it just going to be the end? I don't know. And so I guess there's an underlying unsettledness. That's pretty much, so I don't know if you have any wisdom to add in terms of really like making sure we're not checking out because things like our mind can say, oh, it is all impermanent. And then we can train our body to relax but then, given the world, it's all kind of crazy. I don't know. Yeah. yeah, but part of saying the world's all kind of crazy is a presumption that it uh, hasn't, that it won't always be that way. And uh, th- there's a lot of power on the surface level. There's a lot of power in having a fixed view, and so much of the dance on this sort of relative level is one fixed view fighting another fixed view. And uh, someone digs in, but we dig in more, you know, to have more, we're more certain that we're right. And so we double down, you know, and it's kind of a game of bluff. We're, and we like, you know, people that have certainty, that they have the power of certainty. We all get sucked into it some way. But remember, seeing the falseness of that or seeing that the suffering of that fixedness isn't a weakness. It just seems that way. Because we can play in that world. You know, like when your children are younger, Zinzale, and you had to kind of double down, you know, and raise your voice or whatever. I, I could imagine somebody with really deep wisdom having no problem playing that game with their teenage kids or at work or wherever, you know, being an activist where we have to just sort of on this relative level, relative world, sort of appear to have like our stake in the ground. This is the way it is. This is what's going to happen here. I'm not moving, that kind of thing. But And at the same time, you could imagine that person from an inner point of view understanding this is how it is. This surface level certainty has been born. It will live a life and then it will cease, right? It's sort of like we don't have to imagine our opinion is more permanent than it is, but we can speak it loudly when that seems to be helpful. The world or the moment seems to need that kind of clarity. So that's the interesting thing about 
it doesn't coming into alignment with impermanence may not be recognizable on the outside. Like really being aligned, attuned to change, you may you may be on the surface more fierce, you know, more capable of playing the game of life against, you know, whatever you're up against in the dance of your life. It's not a weakness. It's really understanding how things are. And the, the, the real effect is we're not exhausted by life. Because we're not pretending that things are other than they are. And there's a lot of power, like in knowing that things are bursting into the moment and that are ceasing. Like you mentioned reminding the body to relax. Like that, have you noticed how ineffective that is a lot of the time? Because we know we need to relax, right? That we're all bound up, but we can't. But when we, when the, the more the mind understands impermanence, then whatever tension is, the body may actually be really tight, but that tightness is coming and going. Not like there for two days and then later it will finally unwind, but even moment by moment, it's not constant. It's born, being born and dying. Same thing with, like, uh, when and I, I hope it's okay to mention, had an argument sort of last night, you know, and it's, I'm so appreciative that we can get entrenched and, you know, in our relatively mild ways, I think. But, but, but it's like, we're not, we don't imagine it's more than what it is. It's a real disagreement. It's a real conflict. There's real unpleasantness, I'm assuming, both in both of us, certainly in me. And then it ends. And, it, and it's like, it's empowering to know that it comes and goes. Because then I don't have to figure out how to make it go away, because I know it's going to go away. Right? That's the amazing thing. And I don't have to be foolishly thinking, oh no, which, I mean, I saw that, like kind of doubling down or just, you know, how the mind wants to sort of hold on, still holding on, you know, in different ways. <laughs> <laughs> You're like this. I told Wynn, I'm, I'm never going to have you pick me up from the airport again. <laughs> I'm just going to do an Uber. <laughs> So you can see how long that lasts. You can check with me in a few months. <laughs> That's all the details you're going to get. <laughs> Unfortunately, it's 9 o'clock. So I wanted just to end, the, you know, I mentioned the uh, Gotami, and I just wanted to read. So uh, she then sort of woke up. And she uttered this verse. It's not just a truth for one village or town, nor is it a truth for a single family, but for every world settled by gods and people, this indeed is what is true. Anicca, impermanence. And so she returned to the Buddha, and the Buddha says, Have you obtained, Gotami, the mustard seed? Finished, sir, is the mother of the mustard seed, she said. 
you have indeed restored me. And the Buddha, sensing her awakening, kind of real deep insight she had, had this verse. So the Buddha saying this to the group that had gathered. A person with a mind that clings, deranged to sons or possessions, is swept away by death that comes like mighty flood to a sleeping town. And uh, Gotami asked to be a bhikkhuni. She got her back then. It was just a matter of saying, okay, now there's a little ritual that people go through. It's not that complicated even now, but back then it was sort of, Buddha would just sort of say, okay, you're a nun, something like that. And as these stories always seem to go back in that time, in a short order, you know, she joined the bhikkhunis and became one of the arhats, fully awakened ones. It's a nice way to end our time this evening. <clears throat> so let's just sit together for a few seconds. Notice that the class for this evening has ended, ceased without remainder. On. Thanks, everyone. Nice to see you here. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.